In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, and respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in this series entitled Life, the Islamic Answer. We began the a first topic in this series which has to do with the place or importance or value of knowledge and aql. We translated aql as goes beyond just intelligence to your ability to understand and to understand deeply, your ability to apprehend or comprehend or understand and perceive the world as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended you to, to perceive it. So today, inshallah, we continue as we promised and as we said last time in the next topic, which is to, now that we understood the importance of knowledge and the importance of aql, and we saw what our religion teaches about them, we want to answer the next question, which is why? Why does Islam give this type of importance to knowledge on the one side and aql on the other? And to a large extent, indirectly, we've already started to address all of this, so there should not be a lot of surprises in what we cover today. Alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah. But to a large extent, this is supposed to be a validation of everything that we have said until now, except that we said we want to focus this time on the Holy Qur'an. And so we're just adding another twist or another angle to the discussion, and this time we're focusing on the why. So before we go into the, in the verses of the Holy Qur'an for today, there's a couple of remarks that I thought I would make just because, once again, it's a little bit in reaction to some feedback, some reactions and comments that uh, we got over the past few days. And the point that was being made, and I think it's, a, it's an accurate point, it's, it's real and it's true, is that it does seem as a topic, especially in the way we're presenting it, it does seem that this is quite demanding. The, the things that we're talking about, the teachings we're talking about, if we want them to be truly applied in our lives, then we seem to be asking for a lot. And so, to some, this might seem like a reason to kind of elevate your game. You have to take yourself to the next level if you are serious about any of this. And to some, unfortunately, and it's inevitable that some will perceive it more from that angle too, that it could be a source of stress, that you beat yourself up, that you bring yourself down, that it shakes your confidence in yourself, in your belief, in the level to which you thought you were a believer and you were someone who was observing your religion and your teachings. And then you hear about some of the points that we've been talking about and you see the 
quite significant gap in many cases for all of us between the manner in which we live our daily lives and what is being taught in these principles. And so, of course, to some, this could become a source of stress. And I thought that I would at least, although we've talked about it quickly a couple of times, stress the point that the entire objective from the series, or to a very large extent, it's not simply to impart, to share information. The, the impetus, the drive, the motivation behind the series initially was that we felt that there's a need for something like, I don't want to call it that, because I think the series, inshallah, does more than just that. And there's a whole, it's a loaded term with a lot of baggage behind it. But to a certain extent, the series is meant as life coaching. Which means that if you take it that way, and this is why we stressed this point a couple of times by saying this is not about what we're trying to do here is not about teaching halal and haram. This is not about black and white. This is about self-improvement. And so, of course, we have to show to the measure possible, to the extent possible, not everything, but we have to show a large enough scope, possibilities, so that someone who really wants to push themselves, they now have the motivation and they can back it up with actual principles and teachings. And someone may decide that I'm good where I am. And, you know, if you happen to fall in that category, fine, so long as you know. So long as you do not stay completely unaware of all of this, that you at least understand what your religion says about this, that's fine, that's up to you, that's your personal choice. That's why from the beginning we said this is not about halal and haram, this is not, not about right and wrong, black and white. This is a gradation, this is a spectrum, this is a continuum. And for each one of us, we have to see, and inshallah, this is what you keep in mind if we have time today for a discussion. This is a point that you can maybe keep in mind. Is that where do you see yourself on that spectrum? And how do you define all of this for yourself? So, I think the point that I've tried to make, not directly, because this is a point that I hope, one of the points that you, you guys can get to on your own, because of the framing that we presented, is that, yes, this is a very broad spectrum. And there could be a minimum, and to some the minimum is fine. The question is, given what you know in today's world, given the circumstances we are observing and we're perceiving and we're experiencing, do you feel that that minimal threshold is different than it may have been a while back, specifically for the topic that we're talking about? So when it comes to knowledge and aql and the time we invest in understanding, the time we invest in learning, given what we said about the state of the world, in general, and the state of the world specifically when it comes to the importance being given to knowledge, given to information, given to teaching, and so on and so forth. And so, to a large extent, this is, whether it's about this topic or, inshallah, all of the next topics, what we're trying to show is that there is a way for someone 
to become a high-performing Muslim based on Islamic teachings. So from an Islamic point of view, I could be a high-performing Muslim because you know I participate in sports or in the business world or at school, but those are the standards of you know the academic world or the sports world. We want to look at it from the standards of Islam itself. Can I be a higher performing person? And if so, then what does that take? So that I take it to the next level. And hopefully, inshallah, as the series progresses, we see that this has very practical ramifications on all of the dimensions of our lives. So that when you are a high performing Muslim in the Islamic sense, you also happen to be a very high-performing Muslim in life in general. So that's the reason why we're putting all of this series together, is that we do want to look at the reality of the world today, but we want to do that from an Islamic point of view to see one, and inshallah all of us agree that yes, of course, we know in principle Islam does have things to say about all of these topics that we all live through and go through and think about, and they're very popular, they're very contemporary, you know, the, the world is filled with people talking about them. But specifically, what does it say and what does it mean for us? What does it look like for me, for my daily life? So, inshallah, we keep all of this in mind. And as I said, you know, if there's one thing you can, maybe as we go through today's lecture or any other lectures, it's constantly to reflect. I try to do it myself. You guys can try to do it. What does this mean for myself? And at the end of the day, if I decide to apply it, do I see that this is going to make me a better person for myself, in my family, in my community, in my society, in the world, and how? What does this mean practically for me and the manner in which I'm living? So as we said, today, inshallah, we're going to continue where we left off with the idea that knowledge and aql, the ability to think deeply and understand the world more deeply than just at the superficial level, are extremely important in our religion. We went through many narrations from the Holy Prophet, from Ahlul Bayt about all of this. So now we want to turn to the Holy Quran. What does the Holy Quran say about all of this? And so, starting from the main question, why does our religion give this type of importance, this importance, to knowledge and to aql. So before we go into the actual verses of the Holy Qur'an, some very quick preliminary remarks, and then we explain the, a little bit of the map that we want to try to follow today. The first one is that, of course, we could have split the verses into many, many subcategories, but we lumped everything together. Inshallah, we'll do it in either one or two sessions. I'm guessing that we'll finish this topic in the next lecture, inshallah. Although we may have time to do it today, we'll see. And uh, we combined both knowledge and aql together. Because as we said, they are very intimately and closely connected. And you will see that in many of the verses. The second point is that we're not trying to provide a full tafsir of any of the verses we're talking about. We're just highlighting the points that we've been trying to make and to get to the answer that we're trying to get to, which is why 
Does Islam give this importance to knowledge and aql? The third point is that there is a very large number of verses that we have to choose from. And the reason I say we have to choose from is that we don't have time to go through all of them. Although I strongly believe that each verse brings something different and new, we have to make selections. So for the points that we're going to make, we're obviously being selective in you know, the ones that we want to emphasize. And inshallah, we'll have other occasions in the future where we can maybe talk a little bit more about some of the other verses. Otherwise, you know, based on a quick overview, there would be perhaps around 500 verses that talk about this topic one way or another in the Quran, perhaps more. Okay, so 400 to 500 verses easily and perhaps up to maybe 700 verses. The verses that we're going to talk about, so I say this so that you also keep it in mind as we go through the, the verses. Some verses talk about the topic in a very direct way. So if we're, you know, we're presenting the topic as why, you're going to see some verses give you the answer. Why is it so important? You can answer with the verse. You will see the verse answers directly. This is why it's so important. And then there are other verses that we're also including that may not be giving you the answer directly, but they're still giving you an answer. So I'm going to say indirectly they're giving you an answer. And they're doing this by the topic, the content of what is being addressed, the points that are being made. They're not directly saying, and this is why it is important, but anyone who is reading the Holy Quran, who thinks about why these verses are talking about these topics, can definitely or should definitely reach a conclusion that therefore knowledge or aql or both are extremely important and this is why. Okay, so some of them, as I said, directly addressing it, some of them indirectly, we're talking about both. So I say this so that I don't have to repeat it once we go through the verses. And of course, at the end, maybe one last thing is that you know, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the style of the Holy Quran and how rich its language is, its images are, how it, it presents its information. We obviously evidently believe that it's to an extent that it's not just it's very rich, it's, we believe it's miraculously rich. And that's why you can always, as time goes by, there is more and more interpretations that come out of it, that people can extract from it. So, in other words, a lot of the verses we're going to be talking about, we're looking at them from a specific angle. So, even for our own topic, we could look at them from different angles, even within the topic. Okay, so that's always valid. So, if you do that on your own, as we're doing it now, or think about it later, that's fine too. So, we're focusing on a specific angle to make a point, but there's certainly a lot more angles for each one of these. And some of them could be in more of than one of the categories that we're going to be talking about, but we're focusing on one. Okay, so with all of this said, why does our religion give this type of importance that we saw in the previous sessions to knowledge and to aql? The verses that we're going to look at, we can put them into big categories so that we understand generally the mapping that we're going to go through. You put the verses in these buckets, the first big bucket, we're gonna, which we're going to break down in two, the first big bucket is that of, I'm going to call it the essentialist bucket. So by essence, 
or by its very nature, for what it is, because of what knowledge is and what aql is, just because of that, it gives them that importance. And we're going to break that a little bit further, as I'm going to explain. The second category, we can call it functional. Not because of what it is, but because of what we do with it. Because of the function that it can play. And again, this one we're going to break down into two big categories. And of course, we could break this down into many, many... We could break this down into many other categories. But to keep it simple and going, and so that we can try to cover it all in a session or a session and a half, we're lumping it into very big categories. Okay? So the first big bucket, as we said, for what knowledge is, and for what aql is, we can break it down into two components. The first one is that it represents truth itself, or to reach the truth itself. But it's because it represents the truth itself. That's one. The second component to that is that you will see that knowledge, true knowledge, and aql are considered sacred. So those two go together. It is because of what they are. That's one. So that's the big first big bucket, broken down into two. The second big bucket, the second big category, as we said, it's the function that it plays. The first part of that has to do with the purpose of the existence of the human being. This is what allows the human being to become fully human. And this can only truly be seen in the afterlife. And we've talked at length about this, the nature of this world and the nature of the next world in the previous series. And inshallah, we'll talk more about it later. But the bottom line is, or you know, allow me to say it, in the eyes of God. The purpose of the existence of the human being, to achieve your full humanity, or in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how human are you? How much of your humanity have you actually fulfilled? That's one purpose of knowledge and aql. And the other aspect of that, so that's the ultimate purpose of the human being. And then there's what I'm going to call the intermediate purpose of the human being, which is how you live in this world. So this is the last of the four smaller buckets and the two big buckets, the functional role of knowledge for the purpose of the existence of the human being, to achieve your full humanity, which is only possible to be seen in the afterlife, although you have to do it here, and two, the manner in which you live your life here, for purposes that have to do with this world, here, without looking at the afterlife. So there's a role for knowledge and for aql to be played in this world. Okay, so this is kind of the mapping of the verses that we're going to look at. And inshallah, once we go through it, it becomes a lot more clear. I know that some of this may seem a little abstract right now. So first group, as we said, based on the fact that knowledge and aql are supposed to represent the truth itself. So one point to keep in mind, and inshallah, you will see this in the verses, is that the Holy Qur'an is saying 
And this is to be validated by philosophers, by us, by anyone. But the Holy Quran is going to present this as though this is something that an, a human being understands intuitively. I don't need to make another argument to state this. I simply need to make sure that you perceive it, and if you perceive it, then the truth is right in front of you. Okay, so it says, keep that in mind, it says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And so here, notice, I'm going to give you a progression. I'm going to give you the rule, and then I'm going to give you how the Holy Quran, in some, in some places, and the entire Quran is built this way. These, these are keys to understanding how the Quran presents its information. It gives you the information packaged very tightly, and then you have to find how it unpacks some of this with more detail and more examples and, and expands your understanding of it elsewhere. So this is a small example of this. In Surah Al-An'am, verse 50, it says, قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرِ Say, does the person who is blind, are they equal to the person who can see? That's it. When a human being understands this, understands as in simply you perceive this, you understand the idea that there is someone who can see and someone who cannot see. Do you consider those two equal? Now you have to spend time, the more you spend time understanding the importance of seeing, the nature of seeing, how difficult it would be for someone who cannot see, how would you explain to them what seeing is? There's a reason why the Holy Quran uses this example, but it's going to use other ones. So this is to understand knowing versus not knowing. Using your aql versus not using your aql. This is the first verse. قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرِ Say, are they equal, the blind and the one who can see? أَفَلَا تَتَفَكَّرُونَ Will you then not think or think deeply or reflect? So first of all, there's a clear distinction between the two. And in fact, I would add to this, when the Holy Qur'an asks it this way, قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي it is so evident that they are not equal that they cannot even be compared. That's what the Qur'an is saying. You cannot even compare the one who knows and the one who doesn't know. You cannot even compare the one who has aql or is using the aql and the person who isn't. Let's see another verse, Surah Al-Ra'd. So save time, I'm not going to read the entire verse. At some point it says, قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرِ The same, but it continues. So beyond the first question, are they equal, the blind and the one who can see? Or are they equal, darkness and light, or darknesses and light? So again, it's a new image. But we should, as human beings, intuitively understand what the Qur'an is saying here. That there is such a difference between the two that it cannot even be compared. Okay. In the next verse in Surah Fatir, وَمَا يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرِ In this case, it's not a question. The Quran states, وَمَا يَسْتَوِي الْأَعْمَى وَالْبَصِيرِ وَلَا الظُّلُمَاتُ وَلَا النُّورِ وَلَا الظِّلُّ وَلَا الْحَرُورِ وَلَا الْأَحْيَاءُ وَلَا الْأَمْوَاتِ Now it's giving a lot more examples. 
In case you're not getting it, we're going to give you other examples. And they are not equal, the blind and the one who sees, the darknesses and the light, nor shade and scorching heat, nor are the dead and the living equal. What is it talking about? It's talking about your ability to see the truth. That's all it's saying. These are the, the examples, the analogies that the Holy Quran is presenting to you to say the one who is seeing the truth is like the one who sees. It's like the light. It's like being alive versus being dead. What else can the Holy Quran say to show the, the distinction? And of course here, it's, this is the point we're trying to make. By its very nature, when you understand seeing versus not seeing, light versus lack of light, life versus lack of life, do you not see the difference between the two? This is what I meant when I said for itself. In itself, it has a value. Okay, we're going to take it a level further down. Well, let, let's finish it with this verse and then we'll... In this verse, we can talk a lot about it, but we don't have time. In Surah Al-Ra'ad 19, And so this already touches on which knowledge are we talking about. Okay, So in case someone is wondering what seeing and what blindness was being referred to in the other verses, this is the blindness and this is the seeing. Is the one who sees, is the one who knows that what has been revealed to you from your Lord is the truth. Is he like the one who is blind? So now we know what blindness meant in the other verses. It's not talking about, but this is the imagery that the Holy Quran uses. You want to understand what it means not to see that this is the truth? This is the example of it in real life, in the physical material world. And this is how it translates into the mental and spiritual world. Okay. And so, of course, here we could take it to the next level and say that a knowledge that ultimately leads to seeing that this is the truth, as the Qur'an says, any knowledge that leads to you seeing that what has been revealed to the Holy Prophet is the truth, that is the knowledge we've been talking about all along. All of it together. Everything that has been revealed to the Holy Prophet. The more you know something that allows you to see that this is the truth, any knowledge that allows you to see that this is the truth, that's the knowledge we've been talking about. And of course, the opposite. A knowledge that leads you to say this is not the truth, that prevents you from seeing that this is the truth, this is the, inshallah, we're going to talk about it as our next topic, the jahl or leads to jahl, or leads to the counter-knowledge, or the counter-aql, the opposite of what we've been talking about, walking in the opposite direction. Okay? So keep that in mind. So this is the first part of the first category, which we said, based on what it is. What else based on what it is? Because it is sacred. Knowledge and aql are sacred. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them a sanctity. Why? 
because they are the truth, because of their value in themselves, which we just established, which we should see on our own. Any human being should recognize this. Let's see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes sure we understand this sacredness. So the first point is that we're going to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly establishes himself in the Holy Quran as the source of knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot be the source of something that is not sacred. If something is sacred or holy, it acquires its holiness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he must be necessarily the source of whatever it is that we're claiming to be holy and sacred. Now we're going to see how the Holy Quran, so by opposition, if we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am the source of something, we should automatically say, therefore it is sacred. It has a divine source. That's one. And beyond that, I'm going to ask you to also look at something else going on here. Not only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am the source of knowledge and I am the source of your aql. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He does not have to do this, but He does it. And you will see it in the verses. He positions Himself as the first teacher, as the first agent who imparts knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not need to present Himself in this way. To say there is knowledge that I have that I'm sharing in this way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can say, you know, you have the knowledge, we've revealed things to you, we've made you, you know, have a faculty to use. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to go further than that. Which again tells us that this function of taking true knowledge and passing it on has a divine source. Therefore, has sacredness and is holy. So this becomes the second reason why we're saying in itself, knowledge and aql are sacred. In themselves, they have value. So that becomes our first big answer. Why does Islam give this importance? It's because human beings, when you live your daily life, you may not think about things this way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is bringing you back to reality and telling you this is the true state of the world. You want things that have true value things that are really going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is one of them. This is the core and the basis of all of them. Knowledge and your ability to use it, your aql. In Surah Al-Baqarah, and I don't have time to go through a full commentary, we would need lectures on, on these verses, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَعَلَّمَ آدَمَ الْأَسْمَاءَ كُلَّهَا When he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the entire story, وَعَلَّمَ آدَمَ الْأَسْمَاءَ كُلَّهَا ثُمَّ عَرَضَهُمْ عَلَى الْمَلَائِكَةِ فَقَالَ أَنْبِئُونِي بِأَسْمَاءِ هَؤُلَاءِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ قَالُوا لَا عِلْمَ لَنَا إِلَّا مَا عَلَّمْتَنَا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْعَلِيمُ الْحَكِيمُ And he taught Adam the names. We're not going to talk about the meaning of the names. There's a teaching happening. And he taught Adam the names. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is positioning himself as the teacher of Adam. So there's a teaching that is happening, and the teaching is being made, is being done by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. He attributes it to himself directly. Adam, And he taught Adam the names, all of them. He then presented them to the angels and said, tell me the names of these if you are truthful. 
to the angels? And the angels replied, they said, glory be to you. We have no knowledge except that which you have taught us. Then, indeed, it is you who are all-knowing, the wise. He said, Adam, inform them of their names. When he had informed them of their names, he said, Did I not tell you that I know the unseen and the heavens and the earth, and that I know whatever you disclose and whatever you are concealing? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now talking to the angels. So the first point is, you clearly see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala attributing the teaching to himself directly. One. Two. There is, if you really understand the verse, it is clear that the main difference between this new creature and the angels is that this creature was able to learn something and therefore he was honored. The honor of this new creature is that he was able to learn something that God gave him. Okay, keep that in mind. We're going to come back to this point to clearly establish that your merit as a human being lies in what you know. The angels prostrated to Adam alayhi salam, not just because of a potential, because he's carrying now something they are not carrying. This is not a random act. You know, I just bring someone and I say, this is so and so. I have appointed this, the new king. I have appointed this person, your new president. Bow before him. And so people bow. And then two weeks later I say, I fired this person and I've hired a new president. Because it's not based on something real. It's based on a convention. We decide, someone decides. We decide. One person decides. But it, not, it may not be based on anything. Or it may be based on some merit. But it's not existential. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never elevate a creature over another creature if they are not truly superior to them. There is something superior here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to make sure the angels understand. So all of this happens. And the main trait was what? Was that Adam knew what they did not know. So the main distinction is what? Is knowledge. You want to understand what elevated Adam over the angels? You have to understand that it is knowledge. Now we're not, we haven't said knowledge of what? Inshallah one day we'll talk about that. But based on the theme that we have been presenting, this is clearly the case. He said, do you know what he knows? No, then you can teach them Adam. Now that you have taught them, you are superior to them. Bow down to him. The angels are not physical creatures. Their bowing down does not necessarily mean how we bow down. Okay? This is an existential act to recognize his superiority over you. Right? Based on what? Because he has now become your teacher. Okay? So here there's another point that I mentioned very quickly just to make sure that it is clear is that there is clearly something in the nature of this new creature that has to do with knowledge. Okay, so inshallah this part is clear too. Right, there is a type of curiosity in the human being that can only be filled with knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not ask you or expect you to learn if he hasn't put the appetite for you to go after the knowledge. Okay, these go together. In Surah Al-Rahman, from the beginning, chapter 55, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Ar-Rahman, Allama al-Qur'an. 
خلق الانسان علمه البيان the merciful he taught the quran he created the human being he taught him let's simply say expression البيان although there's a lot that we can say about البيان it's not just your ability to speak it's everything that goes behind at an abstract level that allows you to speak to think at an abs in an abstract way which animals can't do it's not just putting a word to a notion you have to have a an ability to abstract the notions and use language in any case so again in the verses the beginning of surah al-rahman in the verses allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by saying he is a teacher he attributes teaching to himself ar-rahman allama al-quran one did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to say that he taught the Qur'an? No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can reveal the Qur'an, can descend the Qur'an, can make the Qur'an known. But he chose the expression, he taught. There's a teaching, there's an imparting of knowledge. Allama al-Qur'an. And then what, what else? خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ عَلَّمَهُ bayan. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making a point to state it, it's because it's very special, it's very unique. There's something exceptional happening here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to make sure people understand, human beings understand, that your ability to have bayan, your ability to have expression, clearness, clarity of expression, and the logic that goes behind it and and, this is given to you from God and it's taught to you by God. It's taught by God. No need to comment more. Think about that. And then finally, the entire surah begins with how? It begins with Ar-Rahman. Al-Quran, Khalaq al-Insan, Allamahu al-Bayan. It's almost stating applications, examples of Ar-Rahman. It's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us this act of teaching the Quran this act of creating the human being and this act of giving the ability of expressing himself to the human being, all of this stems from what? From the mercy, from the Rahman, from this attribute. This is not the attribute of Qudra or power. This is not the attribute of Aziz, Hakim. This is not the attribute, this is not, no, this is the attribute of Ar-Rahman. So now we understand this ta'aleem, this khalq, the teach, they stem from which attribute from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? His mercy and his rahmaniyyah. For those who are interested in these topics, difference between rahmaniyyah and rahimiyyah. These are two different attributes. Okay? Inshallah, one day we talk more about that. Another set of verses. Similar notions so that we don't spend too much time on them. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. Khalaq al-insana min alaq. Iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram alladhi allama bil-qalam. Allama al-insana ma'alam ya'alam. So again, our focus is always now on knowledge and aql. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this surah with which word? Iqra, that's one. Read, 
or recite. This is how you learn as a human being. Right? Iqra'. First word. This should be our slogan and our flag as Muslims. This is our first word. This is the first revealed truth to Muslims. This should be our program in life. First word, Iqra'. Iqra'. Bismi rabbika alladhi in the name of your Lord. Rabb. We spoke in the Lessons on Tawheed and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We explained lordship. We explained rububiyyah. What did we say? We said ar-rabb. Again, it's not the attribute of qadrah. Different. It's not the attribute of ilm. These are different. This is rububiyyah. What does rabb mean? It's the one who takes care of. It's the one who brings up. It's the one who allows it to foster and prosper and grow. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this attribute to say what he's going to say. اِقْرَأْ بِاسْمِ رَبِّكَ الَّذِي خَلَقْ Again, now the act of creation is attributed to rububiyyah. What else? خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقَ The creation, he created man or the human being from a clot of blood. So we're not commenting here. There's a lot to say. خَلَقَ الْإِنسَانَ مِنْ عَلَقَ اِقْرَأْ Again, وَرَبُّكَ الْأَكْرَمْ and your Lord is the most noble, is the most glorified. Al-Akram. Alladhi, why? What's the explanation? Alladhi, allama bil-qalam. The one who taught by the pen. So now we have iqra, read, and now we have the pen, write. Okay? Alladhi, allama bil-qalam. The reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying this, this lordship that he's attributing to himself is because he taught the human being by the pen. The, the easy explanation of this to, is to say Allah subhanahu wa is attributing this discovery or this use of writing which most likely changed this species into what it is to himself through an act of inspiration or revelation or whatever it may be. Allah subhanahu wa is Directly attributing it to himself. What did he teach by this qalam? He taught the human being that which he did not know. It could be very specific things, that which he could never know by himself, or it could be everything. Everything that he did not know. What did we know? The Holy Quran says, Allahu akhrajakum min butoni ummahatikum la ta'alamuna shay'a. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who allows you to exit the wombs of your mothers not knowing a thing, a single thing. In any case. So, I'm not going to spend more time on this. I think the points uh, are inshallah clear for this, uh, these verses from Surah Al-Alaq. Now we explained the sacredness of knowledge and the sacredness of aql from these few verses. There are many others, but these are a few, I think, that make it very clear. Let's continue with this notion of the sacredness of aql and the sacredness of knowledge from another angle. Also, that establishes the sacredness of these realities. This time we're going to look at prophethood. What is the role of prophethood? What are prophets sent to do? 
So we're not going to go through a theology lesson now of beliefs to explain what prophethood is. We've already done that. Assuming that we understand the sacredness of the rank of prophets and the role that prophets do, let's look at verses of the Qur'an that talk about what is it that the Holy Qur'an is exactly saying. In Surah Al-Jum'ah, we all know these verses, inshallah. In the second verse, it says, هُوَ الَّذِي بَعْثَ فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ لَفِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ It is he who sent among the Ummiyeen a messenger from among themselves, reciting to them his signs. Okay, so now we have one of the functions of prophethood. يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ And purifying them. وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ And to teach them or teaching them the book and wisdom. كِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ When before they were in obvious misguidance. So clearly, we have here a listing of some of the functions, the purposes of sending this specific prophet, and other prophets we'll see, is the same function, to perform these specific functions, one of them clearly being teaching. So teaching becomes teachers are doing the same thing as prophets do. To the extent that the knowledge matches or leads to, then you are walking in those footsteps. That's one. The second point. In the verse, and I don't have time to dwell too much on the verse, there is clearly an, uh, a feeling you get when you recite the verse that there is almost an act of rescue happening. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, it is He who sent His Messenger so that He performs these functions, they were in a huge misguidance, a severe misguidance. They were in a loss. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rescues them with this, with this prophet, with this messenger who performs these functions. And included in the functions is the teaching. And so the teaching becomes this act of rescue. And we talked about that. And we said, Imam Ali alayhi salam says, the proper attitude to have is what? To have mercy upon the ignorant. That's one of the signs of knowing this person has aql is that your reaction, your attitude towards those who do not know, so imagine if you are a prophet, your attitude, if you have true aql, your attitude to the, towards those who do not know is what? Is rahmah. So you're always in a state of mercy. So th- make the connections here. This is what Imam Ali salam said, this is the role of prophets, and this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he talks about teaching, we said he brings it back to his Attribute of Rahmah, his lordship and his Rahmaniyyah, right? Rahman allama al-Qur'an, khalaq al-insan allama. There's a teaching that happens out of mercy. You have and they don't, you share. Okay. And then of course in the verse, it's also clear and inshallah we're going to emphasize this later. But this is very clear in the verse. In this verse and in a couple of other verses we'll, we'll look at quickly. Was knowledge enough for the rescue? No. بَعْثَ فِي الْأُمِّينَ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ There's a purification required. وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ 
teaching on its own is not going to be sufficient. You are going to need something which we've been calling the ethics of knowledge. And inshallah, we're going to detail that a lot more. But this is where you see that the prophets are not just teaching. There's teaching and something else that goes with it. Because there are people and creatures who may have the knowledge, but that still does not lead to the required outcome, which we have been referring to as this is not the Islamic knowledge. Because Islamic knowledge includes the outlook and the action that follows. Okay, inshallah, we continue with that. Surah Al Imran in the same vein, لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ We can make the same points. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala got certainly favored the, the believers or bestowed a favor upon the believers when He sent them a messenger from among themselves who recites His signs unto them and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom while aforetime or before them they were in manifest error or loss or misguidance. The difference between this verse and the one before it, same points as above, a lot of the verse is the same. But then the, here there is a very clear beginning that is different to the verse, لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making a point to say, He did not have to. He bestowed a favor upon. A favor is not something you have to do. This is minna, right? You provide, al-man is something additional. So this is not the necessity. This is going beyond. When you put all of this together, you see the favors, the combination of the favors. Allah did not have to send a messenger or send a messenger in this way from amongst them who will teach them and who will purify them and who will teach them the book and the wisdom. Okay, so there is a divine grace here. There is a favor. In any case, so, so here then of course we have to think about what does it mean when we talk about gratitude, when we talk about appreciating. And concretely, what does that look like? To show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you appreciate that He has given you, granted you this favor. Okay, so any case. In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is Ibrahim السلام, praying. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Ibrahim that he has made him an imam, Ibrahim السلام, he asks, he prays to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he allows some of his descendants to become also imams. Okay, and so he prays. So one of his prayers, he says, رَبَّنَا وَبَعَثْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ So, of course, we gave the answer earlier that did Ibrahim's prayer happen? Did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer his prayer favorably? Yes, it did. Okay, so what was the prayer? رَبَّنَا وَبَعَثْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُم Allah, Allah uh, Ibrahim السلام, says, Or our Lord, send amongst them, amongst them a Rasulan, uh, a messenger from amongst themselves. That's one. To do what? يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِكَ To recite your signs upon them. وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ And to teach them. So this was already included and this is, of course, a sign of, an indication of the type of knowledge that Ibrahim has that in the end when the Prophet is sent, it matches the perfect description that he asked God to send as a Prophet to those people. Okay, this is, uh, there's a lot that can be said here. The second point, because everything else is the same, the second point to really notice in this verse 
is that in the previous verses, يُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحَكِمَةِ In this verse it says, يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحَكِمَةَ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ And so here, the act of teaching happens before the purification. There is a purification of yourself, an improvement of your spirituality that can only happen, which is inshallah what we're trying to do, which can only happen after you acquire a certain type and certain amount of knowledge. If you don't know what you don't know, you don't move in that direction. But there's also another type of dynamic that we talked about in the past. In the previous verses, we saw that the purification is happening before. If you truly purify yourself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will also grant you a knowledge. So there's a knowledge that comes after the purification. We are now here focusing on the knowledge that comes before. We need to acquire that knowledge and to work on the purification. And to the extent that we are successful, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises to teach us in his own way. To take us to the next level of purity. And this was the whole topic of knowledge and taqwa that we talked about in our previous series. In the third grouping, so now we're moving to the purposes of human existence. We talked about why is knowledge and why is aql so important in itself. Now we're going to talk about why are they important from the point of view of their function. What you can do with them once you have them. The first grouping has to do with what you can do about your own value as a human being. The purpose of your existence in this world. How do you achieve your full humanity? And we said, this is only visible, this is only something that you can truly assess in the afterlife. In this world, you can't really tell how close is someone to God or how human are they truly. Well, it's not about their body. And it's not about what the acts, the physical acts that you do. It's the type of knowledge that you carry and it's the type of intentions that you carry. And it's the type of connection you have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that define your value as a human being. None of this you can see. You can get glimpses of it. You can get indications of it. But you can't really see or assess this in this world. This is only visible or possible to see in the afterlife. So, as a first group, the humanity of the human being depends on and we already started touching on that earlier, depends on, as we explained in the ahadith, depends on the knowledge you have and your ability to use your aql. So your purpose, the purpose of your existence as a human being equals your ability to use your aql and to acquire the knowledge that goes with that aql. That's your entire worth. So why is it so important? It's because this is the only way to acquire worth to acquire value, to become human or more human. So the verses say in Surah Al-Mujadala, as an example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in chapter 58, 11, He says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah will elevate or Allah raises those who believe among you and those who have been granted knowledge, many degrees, degrees, ranks. So it's almost like the, 
the, the verse is actually saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise by a level, by a degree, by a rank those who are believers and those who have been granted knowledge he will raise many ranks for the same thing for the same effort, for the same act we don't have time to go through the verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about what these people are doing and so if you do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promise, promises to raise you in rank but there's a difference if you are only a believer then you are being raised one rank if you are a believer who also has knowledge you are being raised many ranks it doesn't say what, how many there's a difference for the same act, for the same effort. Why? Because of the knowledge you carry. Because you understand much more what you're doing. The other person is doing out of faith. You're doing it out of faith and understanding. In Surah Al-Zumar, and we'll come to this verse a little bit later too, say, are those who know equal to those who do not know? And we talked a lot about that. Only those who possess intellect take admonition. Those who these verses are going to be useful for and so they will remember. And inshallah we'll talk about what is this remembrance. Remember what? Those who have intellect. And we talked about that and we saw the hadith, if you remember, of Imam Al-Kadhim and others who say, Those who have intellect, we saw that in the narrations. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, yes, there are human beings, but they're not equal. We can say all of these people are human beings, everybody shares the same, Allah is, is fair, yeah, Allah is fair. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair in a way that is very fair. So that if you carry knowledge, you're in a different category than the person who does not. And in the first verses, we explained why. Because it, in itself, it's something completely different. You cannot even compare. The alternative to all of this is what? The alternative is not, you're not using your aql. You're not learning the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. What's the outcome? How does the Quran describe those? In one verse it says, this is Surah Al-Furqan, أَمْ تَحْسَبُ أَنَّ أَكْثَرَهُمْ يَسْمَعُونَ أَوْ يَعْقِلُونَ You think, you have the impression that many of them actually hear what you're saying or that they have the ability to think, يَعْقِلُ to understand, إنهم إلا كالأنعام بل هم أضلوا سبيلا. They are like cattle. No, and the Quran elevates, says no, even worse. They are even more astray. They are even more lost than the cattle, the anam. In another verse, لهم قلوب لا يفقهون بها. So. It's not the time now, inshallah, one day we'll talk about all the meanings that the whole Qur'an gives to the qalb, why it talks about qalb, the heart here. Okay, but in short, we'll simply say, this is a reference to, it's considered the center of all of your perception. Everything that you feel and you comprehend and you understand is referred to as al-qalb. It's not the physical heart. Okay, so the Qur'an says, لَهُمْ قُلُوبٌ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ بِهَا They have hearts with which they do not understand or understand deeply. Fiqh is a deep understanding of something, not just a superficial understanding. 
وَلَهُمْ أَعْيُنٌ لَا يُبْصِرُونَ بِهَا And they have eyes with which they do not see. Is it because they physically don't see? No. وَلَهُمْ آذَانٌ لَا يَسْمَعُونَ بِهَا And they have ears with which they do not hear. أُولَٰئِكَ كَالْأَنْعَامِ بَلْ هُمْ أَضَلْ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْغَافِلُونَ They are like cattle. No. In fact, they are even more astray. Why? Because they are the ones who are heedless. They are in a state of ghafla, which we talked about. You said this is the opposite of aql. This is the opposite of being in a state of awareness. These people are in a state of ghafla, completely heedless, completely negligent, completely careless. In the last verse, in the worst of the living entities, the dabba is a, an entity that moves, a living entity. It means it, it, it moves on earth. Okay? So any animal, it could be an insect, it could be a, any living creature, could be referred to as dabba. That includes us, anything that has living that allows it to move. In Nashar al-Dawabi and Allah, As-Sum al-Bukm al-Ladina la ya'qilun. Once again, the worst of the living creatures before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the deaf and the dumb who do not apply reason in Surah Al-Anfal. So this is inshallah the, the connections are starting to become clear with all the hadith that we, we've been going through and now you're seeing the confirmation of all of this in the Holy Quran. What else? We're now talking about the purpose, right? So what else is that? The Holy Quran, if it says that your value is based on your knowledge and your faculty, your aql, then this also means that everything you do, to the extent that it is based on that, you are a human being. To the extent that it is not, then you're something else. So this includes even something as important as your belief. If the belief is coming from a place of knowledge and aql, then you are fulfilling your humanity. And if it's coming from somewhere else, for instance, a one, conjecture. You have a theory that is completely not based on any evidence, not based on any studying, not based on any deep reflection. You just come up with something and you accept that as an explanation. This is completely rejected by the Quran. So it says, وَإِن تُطَعْ أَكْثَرَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ يُضِلُّوكَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ إِنْ يَتَّبِعُونَ إِلَّا الظَّنِ If you follow the majority of those who are on earth, they would lead you astray away from the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? That is because they they only follow conjecture, guesswork. يخرصون can mean two things. It can mean surmise, that's the best way, conjecture. Or it can also mean that they lie. So they go after fabrications. That's the best way to put it. In another verse, this is in Surah Yunus. They merely follow conjecture and they just make surmise or guesswork. In Surah Al-Najm, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about how the polytheists, for instance, they believe that the angels are females and that they are the daughters of Allah and so they give them female names. So it attacks that, uh, that belief, but it's very generalizable to any type of belief. They do not have any knowledge of that. 
So how did they come up with this? They simply follow or merely follow conjecture. And dhan, conjecture, does not allow to reach any part of the truth. Okay? It does not allow you to reach any share of the truth. The other way, so if you're not following, you're not following aql, and you're not just coming up with your own conjectures, then what are you doing? You're probably following other people. For instance, culture. For instance, your forefathers. Whatever society you grew up with and whatever they're teaching you. So the Holy Quran again, And if they are told, follow that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed or descended. They don't need to say these words that we are following that which we found our fathers doing. You see that in the actions of the person. You don't need to hear that in their words. And this is the key. The Holy Quran is not saying everything that your parents are doing is wrong. Anything that comes from your culture is wrong. The Holy Quran says, What if their parents, what if their forefathers did not understand anything and did not accept any guidance? So if there's something that comes to you from your culture, from your parents, from any heritage that you receive, it's not automatically wrong. Because we often hear, and I think in an exaggerated way sometimes, an attack against anything that's inherited, as though we have to recreate everything. There is a huge value in what comes down to us. This is how humanity advances. You build on the good that has been passed down to you. You don't reject everything and throw the baby with the water, as they say. Right? So there is a criteria that is given by the Qur'an. If that which is passed down to you comes from people who refuse to use reason and who refuse to be guided, yeah, those things are to be rejected. But the things that are following reason and following guidance, there is nothing wrong with them. So there is an, an assessment or an analysis that needs to happen, right? And then the other reasons, of course, we're continuing with your purpose, your fulfillment as a human being. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He explains in many verses of the Qur'an, the point of all of this is to, in part, is to make certain specific teachings reach you so that you can apply them. So that is part of the knowledge. You are created in this world so that you follow the instructions of God. So how can you do that without receiving that knowledge? And this is perhaps the most common way that we understand, the majority of us understand ilm. As we believe, we sit in a class and they teach us fiqh, they teach us aqa'id, they teach us tafsir, now we know. So the Holy Quran also talks about this. It says, for instance, wa'lamu. So as soon as you see that word, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying there's a necessity to learn. There's a teaching that has to happen. I have to become a student somewhere to someone, to a book, to a teacher, to a scholar, to a group, where I have to learn this. Wa'lamu Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching Allah a specific principle. Wa'lamu and know. So how do you know? You have to go learn. And know that whatever prophet you come by, a fifth is for God, the messenger, his close relatives. So this is a very specific hukum. This is khums, for instance. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's a lot more to say here, يسألونكَ, in Surah Al-Baqarah, عن الخمر والميسر. And they ask you about wine and gambling. 
Say in them there is great sin and some utility to people. But their sin is much greater than their utility, their usefulness. And they ask you, what should they spend? Say that which can be spared. Allah says, Thus does Allah clarify His signs for you so that you may reflect. Now someone can say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows you, explains to you his rules so that you just obey them. Okay, but here there is more. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying he explains to you, it's almost like he's saying he explains to you there's reasons behind the hukum. Do not take the hukum at face value and go apply it. That is one level of understanding the hukum. I know there's a hukum. It says wine is haram, gambling is haram. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the verse says, no, and I will explain to you that it's not a random hukum. It's not a random law where I say this is haram. And No, I'm telling you there is a utility here. There is a benefit here and there is a sin or a corruption that comes out of it. And the corruption is much greater than the utility. And that's why I'm making this a law for you. What does this teach us? It teaches us that we have to apply that same reasoning in the manner in which we approach religion. To understand what's behind the hukum, what's behind the law, how does it apply to our lives? There are realities we go through that are not going to be stated because they did not exist 14 centuries ago. But what falls in the same category? And that's why the end of the verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not say, thus I, I teach you these laws, these rules, these ahkam, just so that you obey. He says, no, I will explain these ahkam to you so that لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَفَكَّرُونَ So that you reflect about these. The point of this hukum is not only that you do not drink the wine and you do not gamble. It's that you deeply think about all of this so that you understand the logic behind it and look at your society and your reality and see how does this apply. Where does it apply and where doesn't it apply? Okay? And then... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we could ask him, what is the, we can look, these are specific ahkam. What about the revelation all taken together? The Holy Quran, all of it taken together. Not specifically talking about, for instance, ahkam which we usually refer to as fiqh. Everything contained in the Quran. Why is it revealed? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining, I've revealed these things to you. So that you think about them, you reflect deeply about them. What about the Holy Quran in its entirety? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Surah Sad, verse 29, Kitabun anzalnahu ilayka mubarakun. Why? A book which we have descended upon you or sent down upon you, blessed mubarakun liyadabbaru ayatih. The point of sending the Holy Quran is what? So that they go to the end of their thinking. We explain tadbir or tadabbur, especially tadabbur. Dubur of something is the back of it, the end of it. So when you do tadbir, you're going, you're trying to go, or tadabbur, you're trying to go to as far as you can. How far can I go in my thinking about this? Where, well with, where will this lead me eventually? How far can I take this idea? How far can I take this action? What are the ramifications? What are the repercussions? What's the domino effect? 
And this is where you see the ability of one person to do tadabbur and another to do much more tadabbur. The Holy Quran says about itself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the reason why I have sent this Holy Quran so that you go to the ends of where you can in the verses of the Quran. لِيَدَّبَّرُوا ayate To reflect as deeply as possible in its verses. That's the entire point of sending the Quran. وَلِيَتَذَكَّرَ أُلُوا الْأَلْبَابِ and that, so that those who have the intellect, the aql, are able to be reminded by it, take admonition. So again, we see this tadakkar, liyadakkara or liyatadakkara. Why? Remember what? Inshallah, we're going to come to that. Again, we have in Surah Muhammad, verse 24, Quran. Do they not contemplate the Holy Quran? Or are there locks placed on? over their hearts. See again, the perception, what we've been referring to as aql, the Holy Quran is using the term qalb here, to ability to do tadabbur, right? The Holy Quran says it's like there's locks upon their hearts so they can't do tadabbur. And another verse, وَتِلْكَ الْأَمْثَالُ نَضْرِبُهَا Why does the Holy Quran keep talking about all sorts of things that we refer to as analogies and parables and examples? What's the point of all of this? These are the parables, the analogies that we set forth for the people. And only those who have knowledge are able to comprehend them or understand them. In Surah Sabah, So the Holy Prophet says, if I have one piece of exhortation, one piece of advice, one piece, one command, one order to give you, it's what? قُلْ إِنَّمَا One thing. Which is what? أَن تَقُومُ لِلَّهِ مَثْنَى وَفُرَادًا So you stand for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. مَثْنَى as in pairs, two by two. وَفُرَادًا alone, individually. Why? What's the point? ثُمَّ تَتَفَكَّرُ at the end, it's to contemplate, to think deeply. Now, of course, the Holy Quran continues. Allah says, this companion of yours, the Holy Prophet, does not have any madness, as you claim. The Holy Quran continues. But here, the short answer is, if the Holy Prophet has one piece of advice to give, it's what? تتفكر. And here we can wonder, why does the Quran say this? The Quran does not add words or statements for no reason. It wouldn't say, you know, stand alone or stand in two. Why, why alone or in twos, in pairs? Inshallah, we'll talk about that. We started talking about, for instance, about silence. The importance of being quiet in Islam. Not talking when you don't need to. And in fact, dedicating time to silence so that you can think and, and calm your brain as, as the hadith said. This is a rest. Silence is a rest for the minds. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you're in large groups, you can't think properly, and therefore you can't do tafakkur. So you need to be alone, or in twos, in small groups. For instance, is a pair. You with one more person. Because the task here is different. It's not a task where we all have to go together to do something, to move something. To No, this is a task where you have to reflect. You have to think deeply. And in order to do that, it's much better to do it alone, or maybe two by two. 
okay? Then types of knowledge, and we talked about that. So very quickly, some verses of the Qur'an that talk about this. For instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَاتَّقُوا وَاعْلَمُوا أَنَّكُمْ إِلَيْهِ تُحْشَرُونَ This is what the wa'lam. And fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or have piety of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and know that it is to him that you shall be returned or raised. So this is knowledge of the afterlife. So we talked about knowledge in general, about all of your beliefs being based on knowledge and thinking. What else? So prophethood. And so obey Allah and obey his messenger. And so if you walk away, and know that, so here's knowledge. I have to work on this and acquire this knowledge, which is what? Which is what is the task of the Prophet? His main task is simply to impart, to communicate in a manifest way, in a clear way, so that you understand. This is the nature of this world, that it's cyclical. It dies and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings it back to life. This is the other nature of this life. Know that this world is, the life of this world is no more than play, diversion, glitter, mutual boasting among you, vying and covetousness for increase in wealth and property. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, you must know that this is the nature of this world. So we've been talking a lot about you know, the types of nature and of, of knowledge. What type of knowledge? We, that question came back in, a few times in our discussions. We understand knowledge is important. Which knowledge? Here are examples the Holy Quran is giving us. You must know these things. You must know about God. For instance, when it says, فَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ you have to know God, and you have to know that these are some of His attributes. That He is Aziz, He is mighty, and Hakim, that He is wise. In another verse, it says, So you have to know that God is all-knowing. And so on and so forth. The purpose of creating the world and the human being. So these are other verses that again are explaining to us why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us so here it could have two meanings one meaning could be basically you go all alone and you think with yourself that's one meaning the other meaning is you think about the creation of yourself for instance يَتَفَكَّرُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ مَا خَلَقَ اللَّهُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضَ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ وَأَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى وَإِنَّ كِثِيرًا مِنَ النَّاسِ بِلِقَاءِ رَبِّهِمْ لَكَافِرُونَ Allah has only created the heavens and the earth and everything between them with a due time, with a stated and end time. But the majority of the people do not believe in meeting their Lord. In Surah Al-Baqarah, of course this is the well-known verse 164, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, lists a long number, we're running out of time, a long number of signs, of his signs in this world, the variation of the night and day, how the ships run upon the seas with what benefits humankind, 
the water that God sends down from the sky, whereby he revives the earth after its death, scattering all manner of living beings therein, the shifting of the winds, the clouds subdued between the sky. Again, this is not, you know, when we say the Quran lists, it's making a point from each one of these. And the earth are surely signs for a people who use their intellect. So in other words, we explain that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the entire point of sending the Holy Quran is for people to reflect. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying the entire point of creation, of creating all of these things is so that لَآيَاتٌ لِقَوْمٍ يَعْقِلُونَ in all of this, there are signs for people who use their aql, who use their intellect. In Surah Al-Jathiyah, وَسَخَّرَ لَكُمْ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا مِنْهِ إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتٍ لِقَوْمٍ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ And he made, and this is a huge topic, we don't have time to, to go through it, he made subservient to you, submitted to you, مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا مِنْهِ Everything that is in thee, Heavens and in the earth has been made subservient to you, submitted to you. Is it the case today? I would say no. But what if humanity lived for another 10,000 years or a million years and technology continues to advance? Isn't that the claim of those who sometimes deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say, oh, since now we can do some genetic manipulation, therefore there is no God. There is no religion and there is no God, there is nothing supernatural. Given enough time, human beings are going to be able to control nature. And this is in fact increasingly how science is defined. Your ability to manipulate, understand, manipulate, control nature. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is not happening on its own. The point of your creation and the creation of the whole world is so that it becomes something you can control. In fact, this is at the Let's say the physical level. There's a mental aspect to this. There's an intellectual aspect to this. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that all of this has been made subservient to you, it can also mean that he's made you able to understand it. Before I can manipulate genetics, I need to understand genetics. I need to have the type of mind that can understand and unpack how nature works. In the same exact way, this requires a lot of thinking. There are people like Einstein who talked about this. And this is what they see as the main proof for the existence of God, that our mind is able to understand the laws of the world. It's like a perfectly made puzzle. If your mind is not in a certain way with certain laws and a certain thinking, it would not be able to understand the laws that might, must match that structure, that internal structure in your mind, it would not be laws. You would not be able to therefore manipulate and control nature. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says to me a verse like this, is basically saying you the point of your existence and the existence of the entire universe is that it becomes subservient to you. But so that you worship me. Not so that you say, I don't exist. I made it that way so that you control it. I'm telling you it's all subservient, submitted to you. It's already there. You're the ones who are not able to use it yet. Next verse. I'm not going to read these verses. In, from 19 to 26 from Surah Al-Rum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about 
the creation of life, death, resurrection, our creation from dust. So how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala extracts all this life, including human beings, from something like dust. Creation in pairs from amongst ourselves. And this is a huge miracle in itself that you have a being that is like you and different from you. Right? The entire idea of the pairs. Right? Azwaj. But in any case, feelings of affection and compassion between males and females, differences in language and colors, cycles of sleep and being awake, which today it's a whole science, the circadian rhythm, right? They study it in different beings, including the human being, how it works, how we sleep and go, uh, that every creature has a, a different cycle, weather, thunderstorms that trigger fear and hope and bring the natural world back through rain, uh, the very existence of the heavens and the earth, and taqoom as-sama wa min ayati, and taqoom as-sama wal-ardu bi-amrih. The the maintenance in existence of the heavens and the earth by his command. Okay, so all of it, the end, all of these verses. If you go back, liqawmi yaqilun, liqawmi yalamun, so that you know and reflect. And then, in Surah Al-Dariyat, I'll go a little bit faster here in Surah Al-Dariyat. Because we talked about this a couple of times, it came up in the questions and the discussion, so I thought we would come back to it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, now that we've gone through all of the hadith, we can get back to these verses. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسِ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ And I have only created human beings and the jinn so that they worship me. Imam al-Sadiq when he is asked, what does this verse mean? He says, أي ليعرفون So that they know me. So this is, this is the very condensed interpretation or explanation of this verse. We have more. Imam Ali in Nahj al-Balagha, when he begins by explaining what Tawheed is, what religion is, what the worship of Allah is, the first, if you open Nahj al-Balagha in the first sermon, the first part of that sermon after he says his hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the sermon begins with the words, awwalu dini The foremost, the first thing in religion is knowledge of him, is knowing him. Okay, so that's why we began, remember the series with knowledge. In Imam al-Sadiq he has a narration, he talks about Imam al-Hussein So notice, notice this, because the question that we got was, you have verses in the Qur'an that clearly say, the reason of your existence, and this was said because we kept saying the reason of your existence is knowledge. The reason of your existence is knowledge. How many ahadith did we go through that? Your worth before the eyes of Allah is, is how much you know. Okay, so then, but the verse says, so that you worship. So is it to know or to worship? So the Imam said, to worship is to know, right? But here we have a bit of an explanation. Imam al-Sadiq says, خَرَجَ الْحُسَيْنُ بْنُ السَّلَامِ عَلَىٰ أَصْحَابِهِ One day Imam al-Husayn came out to talk to his companions. He said, أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ جَلَّ ذِكْرُهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala glorified be his name. مَا خَلَقَ الْعِبَادَةِ He did not create the servants, the people, except for what? Only so that they know him. So if they know him, if they have now come to know him, now that they know him, 
they will worship him. فَإِذَا عَبَدُوهُ إِسْتَغْنَوْ بِعِبَادَتِهِ عَنْ عِبَادَةِ مَا سِوَاهُ And if they worship him, this will suffice them, so they will not worship anything but him. And inshallah, when we talk about what's the purpose of religion, we will talk about this. What it means not to worship anything except God. And do we actually feel, fit this description or not? فَقَالَ لَهُ رَجُلٌ I'm not going to comment on this. I will just read it now and inshallah one day we come back to it. فَقَالَ لَهُ رَجُلٌ يَبْنَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ O son of the Holy Prophet, Messenger of Allah, بِأَبِي أَمْتَ وَأُمِّي May my parents be ransomed to you. فَمَا مَعْرَفَةُ اللَّهِ He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings so that they know him. So what is this knowledge of God? So the Imam replied, قَالَ مَعْرِفَةُ أَهْلِ كُلِّ زَمَانٍ إمامهم الذي يجب عليهم طاعته. It is for the people of every time to know the Imam which they have to obey. Okay, why? It's clear from within the answer, but inshallah, one day we'll talk more about it. Can you really worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not knowing your Imam? Not knowing how Allah has to be worshipped? How, which Allah do you believe in? Which God do you believe in? What are his attributes? What is his religion? It is what people are repeating or is it something different right this is what the distinction is going to be you are after the truth you follow the truth where is that truth who are you supposed to follow in any case in surah fatr there was also the same question we can answer it when it was said what about worship of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for instance allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah fatr innama yakhsha allah min ibadihi ulama it is only those among his servants who fear him, who have knowledge. If you have no knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are not going to have the khashiyah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about, which is a higher level of the ibadah, right? So this is to answer, because we had a little bit of a discussion on how come there are verses of the Qur'an that talk about the point, the purpose of your existence is what? Is to worship. And eventually to have piety and fear. So now we, we are seeing how all of this fits together. And then you have the spiritual growth. In Surah Al-Zumar, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, is the one who is supplicating obediently during the watches of the night, prostrating and standing in prayer, weary of the afterlife, and hoping for the mercy of his Lord, say, are those who know and those who do not know equal, only possessors of intellect, remember. The beginning of the description, we recited the end earlier. The beginning of the description of this verse is talking about someone who stands up in the middle, the hours of the night, praying, worshipping devoutly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The end of the verse says, are those who know like those who do not know. But who will see the difference who will understand this? Only those who possess intellect. So ultimately, the knowledge that you're acquiring is supposed to lead to something like this. Those who truly go in the type of knowledge we've been talking about, is the same, and it's coming back in different ways. This is another one. It's the knowledge that brings you closer to God. It's, a, it's the knowledge that will make some people stand up in the middle of the night praying and devoutly worshipping Allah. This is the same knowledge we've been talking about all along. 
If it leads to that, that's the knowledge we've been talking about. It could be the early st stages of that, but it needs to be in that line because that's what ultimately happens if it's true knowledge. And then you have the virtues. You have a... This, we could have a whole discussion about this verse. It's tiny, but it's in the, it's the story of Prophet Musa السلام, with the servant Al-Khadr when he tells him, allow me to follow you so that I may learn from you. Okay, And that in itself requires a, a discussion when you have someone like Prophet Musa السلام, telling someone else so that I may learn from you. And then what was the answer? So if we just focus on this part, the initial answer he told him, he told him, وَكَيْفَ تَصْبِرُ عَلَى مَا لَمْ تُحِطْ بِهِ خبرة. And how can you have the patience to follow me and to see what will happen when you do not have full knowledge of what, what I'm about to do? And this is an answer to a question we had in the discussion last week. And I said we're coming to this. That... A lot of these things may look like they're very difficult, very demanding, as we said at the beginning. Well, here is the key. If you do not have knowledge of that thing, full knowledge, if you don't have tuhat bihi khubra, you do not fully comprehend something, you will not have the patience to go through with it. It will be too difficult. So here you see one additional layer, one additional virtue of the knowledge is that it allows you to understand things as they really are, which in turn means you can actually go through with them. To others, they will look like they're very difficult, impossible even. But to you, because you have the knowledge, you can go through them. Al-Khadr did not look السلام, like he was having any difficulty going through what he's going through because he has the knowledge. Musa السلام, did not have the knowledge and Al-Khadr warned him. He told him, you will not have the patience to go through this because you, will, you do not have the knowledge that goes with it. And this is a key for us. Sometimes there are things that look like they're very difficult and yet others are able to go through with them. A lot of this has to do with their knowledge. They know something you don't. And so they're going after it. And maybe I'll go very quickly here and then I'll stop. If you go through the stories of the prophets, and inshallah one day we'll get into a lot more detail here you will see that their merits, a lot of it is based on knowledge. If you dig into their stories, and they say this in their own stories. So, as we said, the first one is, you have someone like Prophet Musa and his status, Kalimullah, the one who speaks directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet of Ulil Azm, by our accounts and understanding, one of the greatest five human beings that have ever or will ever exist based on the ranking of prophets and messengers. And yet, here he is. He found someone, and he, when he finds him, he tells him, قَالَ لَهُ مُوسَى هَلْ أَتَّبِعُكَ Will you allow me to follow you? عَلَىٰ أَن تُعَلِّمَنِي مِمَّا عُلِّمْتَ رشدا. So that you may teach me some of that which you have been guided to know or you have been taught. So here you see what the prophets are after. The greatest prophets and messengers are after knowledge. Of course, to me and my people like me, when knowledge comes, it's an, sometimes just an accumulation of 
information. To them, it's transformational. You actually do something. You integrate that knowledge as part of you and you become a better human being as a result. In Surah An-Naml, verse 40, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the man who was the, the wasi, the successor to Prophet Sulaiman alayhi salam, who was either his nephew or a cousin. And of course, there's a whole discussion here that Sulaiman wanted to show the rank of this person, but his rank is through his knowledge. This man said, I will bring you the throne of Balqis, the queen that the hoodhood just came back, the, the woodpecker just came back to tell you about. I'll bring you her throne entirely before the, your eye blinks. Before the blink of your eye. But how did the verse start? The one who had knowledge of the book. So again, this was done with knowledge. Surah Yusuf. Yusuf السلام, at the very end of the story, verse 101, he says, Rabbi qad ataytani min al-mulk. At the end, he thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says, my Lord, you have granted me sovereignty. He was working right beside the king, right? He was responsible for the treasuries of the land. And you have taught me the interpretation of some people, some commentators say dreams specifically or events. He's able to see much further in events and understand them than anyone else. So he's thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what? For that knowledge that he has that no one else is sharing with him. In Surah An-Naml, Prophet Dawood and Sulaiman, when they talk, they say, وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about Dawood, David and Solomon. Dawood wa Sulaiman. وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَا دَاوُودَ وَسُلَيْمَانَ ilma. Everything that follows comes from the knowledge we gave them. وَقَالَ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ they, th- they said, Allah, praise be to Allah, who favored us, who favored us over many of his believing servants. And then Sulaiman inherited Dawood. Oh people, we have been taught the logic or the speak of the birds. Two quick last verses. The story of the Mi'raj. Subhanalladhi Isra bi'abdihi laylan. Min al-Masjid al-Haram. The first verse of Surah al-Isra. Glory be to he who Asra bi'abdihi laylan. Min al-Masjid al-Haram ila al-Masjid al-Aqsa. Why? For a type of knowledge. لِنُرِيَهُ min ayatina. So that we impart, so that we show him some of our signs. This is the Mi'raj of the Holy Prophet. And I will end with this one because I went way over time. I will end with this verse in Surah Taha 114. The Holy Prophet, our Holy Prophet, which we consider to be the greatest of the creatures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can consider this as advice. You can consider this as an order. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, teaches him to say, وَقُرْ Rabbi zidni At the end of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet to say, And my Lord, increase me in knowledge. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches the Holy Prophet. Okay? So, inshallah, there's a lot more we can say. We will stop here. And... Uh, 
Here I'll ask you, maybe we can take maybe 10, 10 minutes if possible, instead of a discussion, so you, you tell me uh, what you want. Instead of the discussion, we maybe give a quick overview of the life of Imam al-Jawad because we're going through his commemorating the martyrdom, his uh, martyrdom anniversary today. So you decide while we do a loud salawat. So a discussion or a quick, really quick, maybe 10, I promise, no more than 15 minutes of an overview of the life of Imam al-Jawad Yes? I have one yes. Okay. A'udhu billah rajim rahim So, as I said, today would be the anniversary of the martyrdom of Imam al-Jawad And we don't have time to go through a full study and we would need many lectures for that in any case. But at least in a few minutes, and I know because some of you have expressed a few times interest in studying the lives of Ahlul Bayt and I find that specifically in the life of Imam al-Jawad there are some key complex nuances and points that if understood they really help us understand the lives of the Imams and Imama in general. So I thought at least we tried to highlight a few things while also trying to provide a very quick overview of the life of Imam al-Jawad so I just felt bad not saying anything as we're going through this event. Imam al-Jawad was born in year 195 after Hijrah. His father was the eighth Imam, Imam al-Rida Ali ibn Musa al-Rida. So Imam al-Jawad would be the ninth of our Imams. We have many narrations, especially from Imam al-Rida that talk about Imam al-Jawad. One of them, he says, when the Imam was born, and it's a very interesting hadith, he says, قُدِّسَتْ أُمٌ وَلَدَتْ Imam al-Rida is talking about the mother of Imam al-Jawad, his wife. He says, قُدِّسَتْ أُمٌ وَلَدَتْ Sanctified, sacred, holy be the mother who gave birth to him. She is pure and she is purified. So already we know without knowing more that this is an amazing woman. That the Imam السلام, describes her as being someone who is has Qudsiyya, has holiness, has sacredness, and she has her own level of purity, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made her additionally pure. She is tahira, she has tahara of herself, and she is mutahara, she has been made pure. So there is a part of this that we would say the Imams, we believe the Imams, all of their mothers, they would not be contained by a woman who lacks belief, who lacks faith. None of the mothers of the Imams would lack that. 
But beyond this, why would the Imam السلام, describe this woman in this way? What is the need? So at one level, we could certainly say the Imam is trying to show her rank, and that's very important. We would know, not know this if the Imam does not explain it to us. But there is more. Subhanallah, if you go in other narrations and if you go through the history, you'll learn that this mother, who was referred to as a Sabika, Sabika was her name, Sabika Nubiya, which is a region to the south of Sudan and Egypt. From that region, and we're told in the histories that Imam Rabba would nickname her, he would call her Khayzuran. But her name is Sabika. This woman was of the lineage of Maria al Qiptiya. Maria al Qiptiya was the wife of the Holy Prophet and the mother of his son Ibrahim, who died at a very young age. And the Holy Prophet honored her very much and praised her very much. One of the things that happened to Maria al-Qubtiyya in her life is that she was accused while being the wife of the Holy Prophet. She was uh, bothered and she was harassed for all sorts of reasons. And one of the things that happened to her is that she was accused of adultery. Indirectly, but she was accused of adultery in her life. And so, of course, she was too pure and too clean of a person to ever think of anything like that, a sin like that, but this is something that happened. When we come to the life of Imam Rabba we see something very similar happening, and we find out that, as we said, she is from the lineage of the same woman, from that same area, from that same family. But this is happening, you know, 200 years later. So, Imam Rabba in his time, and inshallah we'll explain that, in his time, there was a whole discussion about his own imama because he did not have any children. Up to in the 40s, when the imam hit the 40s of his life, the rumors started to spread, especially by his enemies, by al-waqifah, by some of his brothers who were working with al-waqifah. This is a group that emerged during the time of his father, Imam al-Kadhim, alayhi salam. There are people who started saying Imam al-Kadhim is the last imam. He is Al-Mahdi that the Holy Prophet has promised. He will not die. So when the Imam went to jail, they said he has not gone to jail. He has gone in occultation. They knew that the final Imam would go in a ghaybah. So they said he is in a state of ghaybah and he will reappear in due time. He has not died. And he is the last of the Imams. So years later, you have Imam Rida who tells people, I am the Imam. And some of the siblings of the Imam wanted to become the Imam, the sons of Imam al-Kadhim Out of jealousy for Imam al-Rada, they started fueling these rumors that Imam al-Rada is infertile. He can't have children. Therefore, he can't be in himself an Imam, and he will not be the link to the rest of the chain of Imam. And so the Imam had promised that he will have a son, decades perhaps before Imam al-Jawad was born. He said, because they would harass him and ask him, who is going to inherit you? Who is going to be the imam after you? And he would say, he will come and you will have to obey him. But this is many, many years before the birth of Imam al-Jawad And so even after the birth of Imam al-Jawad, there are those who started creating rumors, 
saying this is not the son of Imam al-Raba to further push the idea that this is not his son, therefore he cannot have children, and he is not an Imam, and this is not also an Imam. While the majority of the people, when they saw Imam al-Jawad and the miracles that he would perform and his knowledge, they went back to believing in Imam al-Jawad In any case, there's also a number of ahadith when Imam al-Jawad was born that Imam al-Rada would say, there's one of his companions who came to him and he told him, we have just been informed that you have a son who has been born. And he says, قَدْ وُلِدَ شَبِيهُ مُوسَى بِنْ عِمْرَانْ وَشَبِيهُ عِيسَى بْنِ مَرْيَمْ Now, the one who is similar to Prophet Musa ibn Imran السلام, and Prophet Isa, son of Maryam السلام, has been born. So why would the Imam say that? In what way is Imam al-Jawad similar to them? Very quickly, Musa السلام, when people think about him, the first thing that comes to mind is the amazing miracles, the incredible miracles he performed. And so Imam al-Jawad is similar to Musa السلام, because if you go through in his, his history or his story, you will see that he performed a number of miracles, even at a very young age, because he had to establish his imamah in a very different way, and we'll talk about that in a second. And he is similar to Isa ibn Maryam, and this is something that came, came back again and again in the sayings of Imam al-Rada later on. Every time he would, he would be asked about his son and how could he be the Imam when he's so young, he would tell them the story of Prophet Isa which the Holy Quran says, we made him a prophet when he was still in the crib. Right? And then both for Yahya and for Isa and for Isa he spoke as soon as he was born in defense of the honor of his mother. So that everybody knows that he is truly a servant of Allah and he is unique and exceptional and there is nothing that should be, no attack should be made against the honor of Maryam السلام, for his for giving birth to him. In any case, so it's in the same way when Imam al-Rada emphasizes that Imam al-Jawad resembles Prophet Musa and Prophet Isa, it's in those ways. Prophet Isa became a prophet at a very young age. So it is possible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to appoint someone, one of his servants, as a prophet, as a messenger, as an imam at a very young age. And this was a shift in the imamah. No imam before then had been an imam at such a young age. Right? So, and the birth of the imam when it happened, as we said, becomes a proof, not only in itself a proof for Imam al-Jawad because of the characteristics he carried and he displayed as soon as he became Imam, which explains the role of Imam, but to prove the Imam of his own father. And we have a number of narrations that talk about the blessings that the birth of Imam al-Jawad brought into this world, and perhaps the most important being that it solidified and confirmed, especially for the enemies of Imam al-Rida which probably would have stopped the spread of the truth of the messages of the Imams at that time, had the waqifah spread more. But with the birth of Imam al-Jawad the lineage continues, but the Imamah continues. And therefore this truth can continue and the mission can continue in human history, leading all the way to 
امام المهدي عجل الله فرجه امام الجواد عليه السلام spends about four to five years with امام الرضا after the امام is born and then امام الرضا is forced to accept becoming the heir to the throne by المأمون so he's forced to leave the city of Medina where he lived and he has to go to Ray, Khurasan present day Iran before leaving, Imam Rada actually organized a gathering. He commemorated his own death before leaving. We would call it a majlis today in the city of Medina. He gathered his closest companions and his family members and he told them, this is the last time that you will see me. I am leaving and I'm not coming back. And then he instructed them and told them, when I am gone, the person you are to respect and obey and follow and the one who is my successor is my son, Al-Jawad. Imam al-Jawad at this time, we said he's at a very young age, perhaps around five years old, four to five years old. This is about year 200 or 201. 203, Imam al-Rada is poisoned and martyred by the orders of al-Mu'mun. So this is two years later, two to three years later. Imam al-Jawad is what age? About eight years old. According to most the highest age that is given to the age of Imam al-Jawad when he becomes Imam is about nine years old. He could have been seven or eight or nine at that time. So the news has not reached yet and Imam al-Rada passes away. As we said, he's about eight or nine years old. This is when the doubts start to happen. Imam al-Rada already instructed. I'm not going to go into all the details. Imam al-Jawad came to perform the rituals of death on the body, the blessed body of Imam al-Rada and he went back to his family and he told them that Imam al-Rada has just passed. The news had not reached yet anywhere else. And then with time, as the news started reaching, we said Imam al-Rada had already started saying, this is my successor. But people did not think that he would pass away so quickly and his son would be so young. So already there were dispatches sent from the city of Kufa and elsewhere. Those who are followers of Ahl al-Bayt did not know what to do. So they said, "We, this is a child. Can we really follow a child? We're not sure. And so they dispatched a group of scholars and heads of prominent people, heads of tribes, heads of families with scholars, and they went from Kufa and elsewhere to come and test the Imam. And you can go through the hadith to see how basically they said we're going to go discuss with the Imam out of respect in case he is truly an Imam. But when you go through the questions that he was asked, he was being put to the test. And so the Imam spent days answering their questions and they all left unanimously convinced that this is truly an Imam. He is no different than any other Imams of the Imams that they were following. And then right after that, the season of pilgrimage happened, Al-Hajj. Imam Al-Jawad went to a house that belonged to his great-grandfather, Imam Sadiq that was empty, to meet with 80 scholars and people who had come from all over because they heard that Imam Rada has left this world and he has left as a successor and Imam after him, this young boy of about eight years old. The Imam came to this empty house of Imam Sadiq and 80 people came and for days and nights they asked questions and the Imam answered and this solidified in case anyone was honest and sincere in their 
search for the truth solidified in everyone's mind that this is not knowledge that anyone could have had time to learn from anyone. This is divinely inspired. This person is actually an imam. And so the news started spreading. Al-Ma'mun, after killing Imam al-Rada, he moved from Ray, he went to the other capital, because during his time there were two capitals in the world, Baghdad and Khurasan. So he moved from Khurasan and he went to Baghdad and he summoned Imam al-Jawad I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of the details, we don't have time. He summoned Imam al-Jawad and he was truly in awe and amazed at what he was seeing from Imam al-Jawad. So he decides to contract a marriage between his daughter, Umm al-Fadl, and Imam al-Jawad The Imam is very young here, 8, 9, let's say 10 years old. But the Imam does not go back with his wife to Medina. He leaves alone because this is just a contract. So there's just an agreement that they are now officially going to marry. But they don't actually get married at that time. The Imam goes back. He comes back. He is summoned again by Al-Ma'mun about 13 years later. The Imam at that time is older. Umm Al-Fadl is older. He comes back. And this time he is forced. The Imam tried to get out of it in different ways. He has no choice. So he goes back and he accepts the marriage with Umm Al-Fadl, the daughter of the Khalifa. This caused a huge problem for him, but he didn't care. Al-Ma'mun, at that time, Bani Al-Abbas were very reluctant. They came to him and they told him, we did a census. They controlled the land. They went and they counted and they told him, us, Bani Al-Abbas, our tribe, we are a population of 33,000. And you could not find anyone else but our worst enemy to give your daughter to. There is, is there no one else that can marry her and to keep the kingdom within our family? But he rejected that. He did not care. And he gave them as an excuse that he wanted to become the grandfather of an imam. Okay, and of course, there's a political ramification to this. Al-Ma'mun was trying to bring the Shia much closer to his, to be used politically. He wanted to show that he was much closer to the Shia, and so he's bringing the Imam. And of course, Umm al-Fadl is going to work as a spy in the house of the Imam, and so on and so forth. But the official answer is that he wanted to become the grandfather of an Imam. So as soon as Umm al-Fadl would have a child, the father would be Imam al-Jawad, and since they claim to be Imams, I am now the grandfather of an Imam. In any case, the Imam is forced to accept the marriage 13 years later. So this is year 215. The marriage initially was done uh, 13 years later. The Imam was about 20 years old at that time. He goes back to the city of Medina. Umm al-Fadl is not happy because she sees that the Imam has married another woman and she, he has a child from her. And he does not have a child from Umm al-Fadl. She writes to al-Ma'mun, her father, and she tells him the Imam... I, he does not like me, he does not want me, he doesn't want to be with me. The father completely ignores that. And now we have a son to Imam al-Jawad who is Imam al-Hadi And in any case, he ignores her complaints as we said. In year 218, so now the Imam is about 22, 23 years of age. In year 218, al-Ma'mun dies. Harun al-Abbasi, he left Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun 
to fight each other over his Khilafah. Al-Ma'mun killed Al-Amin. And then when he died, Al-Mu'tasim, the other brother of Al-Ma'mun, became the Khalifa. And he was ruthless. As much as Al-Ma'mun wanted to show leniency and to bring the Shia closer to him, Al-Mu'tasim was much more rude and harsh and, and ruthless with Imam Al-Jawad So, in short, he summoned the Imam once again in year 220. So he brought him back to Baghdad. Every time the Imam could get away from Baghdad, he would, and he would be brought back, as you're seeing. So in year 220, Al-Mu'tasim brings back Imam Al-Jawad back to Baghdad. This time when he leaves, he only leaves with Umm Al-Fadl. He leaves his son, uh, his son Imam Al-Hadi with his mother, Sumana. He leaves them in the city of Medina, and he goes to Baghdad. And here we are told that um, he lived probably around 10 months at most in the city of Baghdad before he was poisoned. So the poisoning of the Imam is also not entirely a matter of consensus. Some say that Al-Mu'tasim used the wife of the Imam, Umm Al-Fadl, exactly for this purpose. And others say it was not her because he sent his commander, one of his commanders, his military commanders, by the name of Ashnas. He sent him to the Imam, and this is very explicitly written in the books of history. He comes to the Imam bearing many precious gifts. But at the same time, they made a citron juice. Citron is like lemon, uh, utruj. They made a juice that they brought to the Imam and they told him to drink it. This is a gift and it must be drank. And the Imam told them, I will drink it later. Give me time and I may drink it later. They told him, no, no, it has to be drank now because we took time to make ice and this needs to be drank cold. So the Imam drank it and it was, of course, poisoned. And so the Imam passes away at the age of 25 years old. So Imam al-Hadi at that time, he is about 8 years old. Because, and this is where you see that he played a significant role, it's a new chapter in the chain of Imamah that happens for these Imams. First of all, you notice that the last Imams, Imam al-Jawad, Imam al-Hadi, Imam al-Askari, they all die at a very young age, 25, 41, 28 years old each. Why? This alone needs to be discussed. This needs to be studied. All the other Imams also had very difficult circumstances. But here you see the difficulty increase a lot. They were not given any any room to maneuver, any room to live freely. And so all of them, you see that the Khulafa of their time, they were ruthless to get rid of them as soon as they could. And that's exactly what happened with all of them. The second thing is, by his own imamah, he established the imamah of his father, as we saw. Right? He also established the imamah of his son, because now Imam al-Hadi is going through the same thing. He is also an imam at the very young age of seven or eight years old. But he doesn't need to go through the exact same thing because now it's been established that an imam may be much younger. And so that's why many of our scholars say this is one of the many interpretations where Imam al-Radha when he talks about Imam al-Jawad, his son, when he was born, he says that there is no one who has ever been born who will be more blessed for Islam than him. He will bring the greatest blessing to Islam. No one will bring more. Why? 
Because it meant either people continue to believe in the chain of imamah or they don't. Either the imamah stops then because people fail to accept this imamah or not. And this is one of the interpretations and there are other ones as well. And the last one, of course, is that by his own imamah, if people actually believe that this is an imam at this young age, then there is no more doubt than that imamah is a divine rank, that their knowledge is a divine knowledge, that they are appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just like people believe in Jesus alayhi salam, just like people believe that Yahya alayhi salam became a prophet at a very young age. Well, now you have an imam. And so if this is true, then you don't go back to saying that there might be a political appointment or people may decide or not decide. This is clearly a human being who has not had time to learn from anyone else. And here he is managing the affairs of the thousands upon thousands of followers with a type of knowledge that no one can match. And inshallah, some other time, we'll have to go through some examples of the knowledge of Imam Jawad and Imam Al-Hadi when, as we said, the, the hadith of Imam al-Radha, he says, لَمْ يُولَدْ أَعْظَمُ بَرَكَةً مِنْهُ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ Okay, so there has never been born someone who is more blessed or brings more blessing in Islam than him. Okay, and so this is how we see the different types of blessings from the life of Imam al-Jawad salam. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us appreciate the different difficulties and sacrifices that our Imams had to go through so that the truth and the knowledge reaches us one way or another.